Welcome to episode two of Hidden in Plain Sight, the HIPS podcast exploring the mysterious disappearance of Elizabethan dramatist Christopher Marlowe. I'm Julian Ng, your host, and investigating this with me is Peter Hodges, himself a dramatist, scholar, and author of Marlowe's Complaint, a unique history of the subject. Together, we are investigating the report of his death in Deptford in May 1593, and we hypothesize that he did not die, but rather escaped with the help of some of the most powerful people in England. In this episode, we will look at Marlowe's life in the intelligence service, a side of his biography that is less well-known than his theatrical career. Hello, Peter. Welcome again to Hidden in Plain Sight. Hello, Julian. Good to be with you. Peter, in our first episode, you gave us some background on the political situation during Elizabeth's reign and the creation of Sir Francis Walsingham's intelligence service. You also introduced the idea that Christopher Marlowe was connected to the intelligence service under the direction of Sir Francis Walsingham and Lord Burley, both members of Queen Elizabeth's closest group of advisers, the Privy Council. Can you tell us a little bit more about how Marlowe got involved in the spy game? What we know is that his service in the intelligence network began at least as early as when he was a student at Cambridge, when he was still in his late teens. One of the singular documents from the period is a letter that was drafted by the Privy Council in response to a situation regarding Marlowe's degree, his graduation from Cambridge. Apparently, the deans at Cambridge in 1586 were unwilling to grant Marlowe his degree on the basis that he had been too long absent from school. We actually have a more or less daily account of when Marlowe was in school. There were buttery books kept at Cambridge for all of the students that are records of their time and expenses spent in the cafeteria. The total number of days that Marlowe was absent over the period of his studies amounts to about two semesters off and on, something like nine to ten months over a period of four years. Apparently, the deans felt he owed them a semester of study. He was probably not the only person who ever faced that situation, but it was highly unusual for the Privy Council to take an interest in whether or not a particular student received his degree on schedule. So much so that they drafted this letter. One of the things that was addressed in this letter, in addition to the question of his absences, was that there appears to have been rumors swirling around that he'd made a trip to Rems in France. Rems was the location for a Catholic school for English students and was considered a hotbed for the recruitment of Catholic insurgents in England. So for Marlowe to be accused of going to Rems he was actually being accused of being a defector of some kind and possibly a double agent preparing himself for a life of subversion and sedition. This would have been a terrible thing to accuse him of at that time in England. In response, the Privy Council drafted a letter which survives to this day 
It was to have been signed by the head of the intelligence service, Sir Francis Walsingham, Lord Burley, the secretary-treasurer of the Exchequer, and of all people, Archbishop Whitgift, presumably, to cover the religious side of the issue. This letter declared that Christopher Marlowe should be furthered in the degree he was to take at the next commencement because, and I quote, it was not Her Majesty's pleasure anyone employed as he had been in matters touching the benefit of the country should be defamed by those that are ignorant of the affairs he went about. <laughs> That's pretty high recommendation. I don't know of anyone else having a letter like that in their resume. That's coming straight from the top. Of course, we don't have the signed letter. That went to the deans, but we do have the draft of it in the records for the Privy Council that survive. Marlowe did take his degree, and he subsequently went on to enter the world of the theater. Oh, wait, hang on. Let me stop you there for a second. You're saying that Marlowe was recruited in college, but then, instead of pursuing a life in the intelligence service, he began working in the theater? I mean, wouldn't the Privy Council be upset by that, especially if they had singled him out for preferential treatment? Well, I want to be clear. The question of his recruitment is still open. But the Privy Council declared that he had been employed in service to his country while he was still at Cambridge. He wasn't a soldier, and he wasn't a diplomat. One of the things about the world of the theater that's also important to note when we talk about Marlowe's likely career as an intelligence operative, it literally precedes and dovetails with his career as a dramatist. The company, the first company that he most likely would have been working for, would have been the theatrical company formed by Sir Francis Walsingham in 1583. This would have been the Queen's Men. This particular group of actors, writers, and musicians were brought together and assembled out of the best parts of the various companies, such as Leicester's Men and Sussex Men and Derby's Men. So all the best performers and writers from the personal companies of the lords who sponsored them individually for their own purposes were assembled into a company titled the Queensmen by Walsingham, which then had the imprimatur of the crown. They traveled the country and staged performances for a variety of reasons. One of them was propaganda on behalf of the crown. They produced plays that supported the Tudor lineage. They also served another purpose by gathering local intelligence on behalf of Walsingham. They would go from town to town and find out what was going on in the churches and the corn stalls and find out what people were talking about and if there was any kind of Catholic activity being discussed or other unrest. It was a way for Walsingham to gather information. He could also use the writers as couriers to carry letters back and forth, other messages. One of the most useful people that could easily have been would have been Christopher Marlowe. 
It's notable that some of the absences recorded in the Cambridge Buttery books for Marlowe coincide with the times that we know the Queen's men were touring the area. Oh, wow. That is really, really interesting. I mean, I didn't know that Sir Francis had created the Queen's men. That, that's completely new to me. But now that we know this, it seems obvious that he wouldn't do that just for the entertainment value. It would make sense that he could use it as part of his information network, and it might explain some of Marlowe's absences from Cambridge. Peter, is there anything else we know about Marlowe that links him to Walsingham's intelligence network? No sooner did Marlowe achieve success in the theatre in 1589 with Tamburlaine than he was employed as tutor to Arbella Stuart, second in line to the succession of the throne behind James. Arbella was a teenager at this time, living with her grandmother, Bess Hardwick, basically under watch by Lord Burley. Marlowe tutored her for three and a half years. Arbella's grandmother, Bess Hardwick, stated in a letter to Burley that Mr. Morley was complaining about not being paid sufficiently because he had so many debts left over from Cambridge. Marlowe appears to have served a dual purpose, one of furthering Arbella's education, and two, while keeping an eye on someone who might be in line for the throne. Now, that's not an assignment that even the very useful Robert Poley could fulfill. I might add that Arbella was a great beauty. She was talented, spoke three languages, and could play lute, the viol, and the virginals, a type of harpsichord. It would not have been unpleasant for Marlowe to spend an afternoon with her. <laughs> I bet. You know, it does sound like he must have been very highly trusted by the Lord Burley. Do you have any other examples of his intelligence work? Another one of the different jobs he appears to have done for Burley involved the Stanley family and Lord Strange, who revived his father's company of players. Marlowe went to work for Lord Strange's men, and they had a tremendous success in early 1592 with what we now call the first part of Henry VI. Lord Strange's daughter Anne was considered by many to have a claim on the succession superior to Mary's son James. Anne was technically behind James, but James was Catholic by way of Mary so Anne became the presumptive Protestant heir to Elizabeth. Strange's brother, William Stanley, was over in the continent, supposedly trying to put together a band of mercenaries and renegades in support of this claim. There was even talk that they might stage a coup of some type. It was about this time when Marlowe was apparently sent to investigate the counterfeiting operation Stanley used to finance his mercenaries. Unfortunately, another agent, Richard Baines, blew up the plan, then informed on Marlowe, and he had to retreat to England. Thomas Kidd, a fellow playwright for the company, claimed that Lord Strange didn't like Marlowe very much, and those people who want to traffic in smears against Marlowe's reputation 
use things like that and statements by Baines to paint him as a dishonorable character. Whereas, in fact, it was Lord Strange who was dishonorable. He was the one who had Catholic ties and was making claims to the throne. And in my opinion, Marlowe was keeping an eye on him for the Queen. Huh. That's an impressive CV for someone so young. In fact, in my mind, it, it now paints a very different picture of Marlowe. You know, certainly nothing like the wild, immoral, heretic he is usually portrayed to be. You have him not only connected to the top men in Elizabeth's government, he, he seems to be a reliable, trusted, and cool-headed sort of person, you know, cool-headed enough to be placed in some of the most dangerous situations a secret agent could imagine. Yeah, that's only the real conspiracies. <laughs> you have to figure there were dozens of false trails that had to be unraveled, too. Marlowe makes fun of all of this kind of thing in the opening of Edward III when Artois gives a convoluted explanation of Edward's claim to the throne. Eventually, though, it was Mary's son, James IV of Scotland, who became king well after Marlowe disappeared. So Marlowe was living a double life as both a trained intelligencer as well as a brilliant playwright and poet. He was connected to some of the most powerful people in all of England. But I guess, from what you've just said, apparently he had some very powerful enemies as well, particularly Lord Strange. Strange had a lot of enemies of his own. Shortly after Marlowe disappeared, Strange got accused of being involved in the Hesketh plot, which was another alleged attempt on Elizabeth. Strange was cleared, but he was still under suspicion. The next thing you know, he has a public quarrel with Robert Devereux, the second Earl of Essex, who defended a Stanley retainer who Strange thought was threatening him. And then immediately after succeeding his father to become Earl of Derby, this was in April 1594, he's apparently poisoned and dies. And do you think the Earl of Essex was involved in that? Maybe. The histories blame the Jesuits who were accused of being in on the Hesketh plot and supposedly wanted to eliminate Strange because he could expose them. Essex was probably trying to fill the space left by Marlowe, keeping an eye on Strange using the Stanley retainer. Well, how about we now talk a little bit about Essex? He was one of Queen Elizabeth's favorites, was he not? He and his father. The first Earl of Essex was Walter Devereux, Robert Devereux's father. He had been made Earl after leading the resistance to the Northern Rebellion of Scots Catholics in the mid-1570s. He was then given charge of the Irish province of Ulster with the intent that he would colonize or subdue it. Thanks to the Irish, that plan didn't go very well. And Walter was recalled, possibly at the instigation of his rival, the Earl of Leicester, another of Queen's favorites. Elizabeth then reversed herself and appointed Devereux Earl Marshal of Ireland. But he died soon after in 1576, under mysterious circumstances, possibly poisoned at a banquet in Dublin. And Leicester later married Walter's wife, Lettuce Nollies. Robert Devereux was 11 when the first Earl died, and he was raised by Lord Burley as a ward of the state in Burley's home in London, 
along with Robert Cecil, who was Burley's youngest son. Now, these two men could not have been more different. Robert Devereux was handsome, dashing, ambitious, and proud, all traits that belong to political characters to this day. This was the post-chivalric age, the emblem of all of this being Philip Sidney, Lester's longtime heir apparent. Devereux wanted to travel in the same circles, but he also had larger ambitions because he saw himself as the rightful head of government. And living in Burley's household, he became very familiar with all of the tools and people in government. His great rival in all of this was Robert Cecil, Burley's son and Devereux's contemporary. Robert Cecil was everything that Devereux was not. He was short, deformed almost, and he was brilliant and very, very secretive. When Francis Walsingham passed away in 1590, Essex was in his early 20s and had his eye on becoming head of the intelligence service. Lord Burley preferred that his son Robert take that role. These young men had grown up under the same roof. It was pretty much a Cain and Abel situation. There was tremendous jealousy between them. And when Cecil got the nod, Devereux decided to form his own version of Walsingham's intelligence service. In fact, Walsingham wanted Devereux to follow him, and he had set it up that he would marry his daughter, Frances Walsingham, Philip Sidney's widow. Devereux married her after Walsingham died, but that didn't manage to get him where he wanted to go because Burley took the reins and handed them over to his son. So when we reach 1591, Marlowe had graduated Cambridge and not only had become England's most famous playwright, I believe he was also an operative working first for Walsingham and subsequently Cecil and Burley. Meanwhile, Devereux, the Earl of Essex, was fashioning his attack on Cecil from many fronts, attempting to investigate the same rumors of Catholic sedition that Burley was investigating, trying to uncover and expose people that could be accused of attempting to unseat the Queen. In order to do this, he established a rival intelligence network with the help of Anthony Bacon, nephew of Burley and brother to Sir Francis Bacon. They immediately began hiring some of the most important people in Walsingham's former network, in particular, Thomas Phillips, Walsingham's codebreaker in the Babington plot. Wait, you mentioned the Babington plot in our first episode. You know, I'd like to hear a little more about that. Who are these people that were trying to unseat the Queen? I think you mentioned Mary, Queen of Scots. Now, remind us of her importance in all of this. Basically, it all came down to Mary, Queen of Scots. If Elizabeth died childless, Mary would have primary claim to the throne by virtue of being Henry VII's closest relative. She was the principal challenger in the 1580s, and managing that claim to the succession was one of Burley's first challenges. By virtue of various plots and counterplots, Mary succeeded in getting herself kept under lock and key in Fotheringhay Castle, and even then she played a very dangerous game equivocating about whether or not she had any intention of unseating Elizabeth. 
This came to a head with the Babington plot in which Mary participated. The proof being her signature on a letter to Babington approving an assassination plot. The man Walsingham had closest to Babington at that time, the man who was reporting on his movements and correspondence was our friend Robert Poley, who was also on hand years later in Deptford when Marlowe was supposed to have been murdered. The man who deciphered the letter and his signature was Thomas Phillips. No way. You've got to be kidding me, Peter, because that is a fascinating set of connections. Ah, wow. Polly and Phillips were both involved in the Babington plot and Polly was at Datford. Are you going to tell me that Phillips was involved in that as well? Not directly, but Phillips brought over a number of others from Walsingham's side to Essex. One of those was Nicholas Skears, who was also at Deptford with Poley and Fraser. But what about Marlowe? Did he join the Essex network? Apparently not. It wasn't unusual for informants to be service of two masters, but uh, Marlowe was apparently loyal to Burley. Essex was a jealous man, so he wouldn't like that. So if Marlowe was working for Burley and Cecil, then Essex might have viewed him, I suppose, as an opponent. What do you think? Essex was Burley's rival, and Marlowe worked for Burley. Essex might have wanted to acquire Marlowe for his network. If he couldn't do that, Essex might decide to attack him. We know that in early 1594, Essex attacked another Burley loyalist, Rodrigo Lopez one of the Queen's physicians, because he made the mistake of revealing in a letter that Essex had the pox. Lopez was promptly tried for sedition and put to death. Mm, so did Essex attack Marlowe? I think he did. So does Charles Nickel, by the way, who connected the dots in his book, The Reckoning, to show that Essex was responsible for the Dutch church libel the broadside posted to the side of the Dutch church in London that got Marlowe into trouble by accusing him of atheism. So Marlowe was actually accused by his enemies. Yes, you said that before in our first episode. Yes, Baines and Essex were his accusers, and both of them were his enemies. Baines accused him of counterfeiting and immorality, and Essex got him accused of atheism. The result was that Marlowe got dragged before the Privy Council and put on a daily watch while they investigated the claims. Before that could be concluded, Marlowe stopped off in Deptford. Where waiting for him were the infamous Robert Poley, Nicholas Skears, and Ingram Fraser. And Mrs. Bull. Aha, correct. We mustn't forget her. You know, you need to explain to us what you think those four people were doing there and why you believe that Marlowe did not die that fateful night. Instead, he escaped Datford and disappeared. However, time is running out for us in this episode. Will you come back and help to add the next chapter to our remarkable story? I would be delighted. Well, thank you, Peter. And thank you to all our listeners. Be sure to tune in for episode three of Hidden in Plain Sight, 
when we will resume our exploration of the mysterious events at Datford in the life of Christopher Marlowe. Those of you who want to jump ahead, you would do well to pick up a copy of Marlowe's Complaint, the book that reveals the rest of this incredible and fascinating story. You can check out Chapter 1 online for free. It's a fun read, and I highly recommend it, of course. But then, I wrote it.